welcome all. I'm here with uh, my good buddy, Joel Evan. Uh, first of all, Joel, thanks for making the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, dude. I'm excited to be here. Cool. Okay, so there's three things I want to chat with you about, and no particular order, but three things that I think are really interesting. And I'm actually curious about um, your ideas on these three things, um, especially some of it. So let's just start with this. Um, let's start with kind of like your expertise, which is kind of in biohacking. Uh, you have a show about it. You wrote a book about it. You know, you might have written a book. And then after you wrote that, you might have switched gears to other, you know, uh, details within biohacking because um, things are always evolving. But if you could explain um, to me and the people who are watching, what is really the definition of biohacking? What are what are its benefits to kind of understand and use? And then we'll kind of get into some of what you consider are your favorite ones. So what, what is biohacking all about? Yeah, great question. So a lot of people, when they talk about biohacking, they think it's like transhumanism or something. And they're like, I, I talked to a guy once, he's like, biohacking. I was like, oh, yeah, I just went to this transhumanism. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I could care less about transhumanism. I don't know what that even means or what they're cloning humans. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way I learned from the godfather of biohacking, Dave Asprey. He's the one who coined the term. Now, Dave, anybody that knows him, he was 300 pounds. He was overweight. He was inflamed. He had mold toxicity, all of these things. And he was a computer programmer. He was a hacker. And so he was trying to get healthy. He, he was going to the Western doc and the Western doc wasn't doing crap for him. He was, they were telling him, do this, do that. He did everything. And they're like, well, you're overweight because you don't have enough willpower, Dave. And you don't know what you're doing. And he was like, you know what? I'm sick and tired of you. You're fired. So he fired all of them and he went on his own quest and he went to all the alternative healers. And guess what? He got better. And when he started looking at his health from a higher level, he he's like, you know what? Uh, it's all about systems and just the way he thinks as a computer programmer. So he took the term biology as in bio and mixed it with hacking. And he goes, you know what I'm doing? I'm hacking my biology by doing some of these modalities. And so now the term biohacking in, in many ways, I think it's gone a little to the extreme and it's even bastardized. And I don't even really like it anymore because here's my thing on it. I love, I got it enchanted and really was enthralled by because I'm like, wow, look at all these ways that we can heal the body that the Western people aren't doing. And I, I just love that. But I also don't like the fact that people think that they can just biohack their way to health. I'm going to tell you right now, no, you cannot. It takes mastery and it takes a lot of learning and it does take systems and protocols. And what I mean by that is for example, a simple biohack could be jumping into a cold plunge and getting cold and getting frozen, right? We know the effects of that. Doing red light therapy, right? Having the red lights shine on your body. Those are all biohacks. But if you mean to tell me like, oh yeah, uh, I have uh, Hashimoto's or something, and I'm going to start doing cold plunge therapy because I heard that that's good for Hashimoto's. I promise you that's not going to cure your Hashimoto's, okay? Doing red light therapy is not going to cure Hashimoto's. It's going to help. But like to think that this one hack you employ in your life is going to like be the end all be all cure all. I just don't see it. And I, I mean, think let me ask, let me ask you one thing about about that. Like, let's just what do you think is better? What do you think is better? Or maybe maybe you'll alter. Maybe your answer will be will go beyond the better or worse idea. But in the meantime, what do you think is better? Someone who really is in tune with what one might call natural law, like, you know, they eat well, they exercise well. They rest well. They have a good uh, mental, emotional uh, 
mindset or program or whatever one might call it, and you know they're healthy, is that good? Or should someone say, no, that's great. Like you should do that. And then also a biohack on top of that. Or are you, would you say that people who do their best to kind of be in tune with natural law, but you know, they, they can't really accomplish that. So they, they, they fall short on some of them. So then they kind of need the biohacking to be healthier than they would have been. Or, or do you think the first thing, even if you're doing all that stuff, yeah, biohack anyway. Sure. I mean, I, hey, if you want to be if you want to be optimal, I think there there's some ways you can hack and optimize your systems doing that. But what you just said, the natural laws and these rhythms, I think that's like the fundamental. And I think a lot of us, we don't want to learn about that or we don't think we kind of poo poo on that or we don't think the mind is powerful as we think. And so we look for these external things to, you know, try to compensate for that. But I mean, here's the best example of all. Your, I know a lot about you because I've had you on my podcast twice, and I just know a lot about you know your teachings, and I've followed you for over the years. And let's face it, Pete, you healed me. So if anybody goes back and looks at my shoulder injury and what was going on there, I mean, I had a dead shoulder for like two years. Now, you one of your mentors, Doctor Thurman Fleet. That guy, if anybody looked at him, would be like, "Oh my God!" Like you're not an epitome of health. You smoke. I don't know how. He was a big smoker, right? Like right. he, he smoked, was I think, that? I think he smoked about two packs a day, and he actually had a he had one fifth lung capacity because his he got mustard gassed as a soldier in World War One without a mask on, so four fifths of his lungs got destroyed, and here he was with one fifth lung capacity. I think smoking about two packs a day, and he lived to eighty eight. There you go. Okay, he didn't have a single biohack in the world, but he understood these natural laws and everything that you're talking about. And I know that you you talk about in zone school. So, um, yeah, if you're, I mean, that guy lived to 88. That's a pretty darn good life back in the, you know, I mean, you we're seeing right now the death rate in the United States or longevity. It's like 70s, like early 70s. It's it's actually declined over the last couple of years. So if we're so modern and modern medicine, then why are people dying even sooner? And I think even right now, when you look at studies for the U.S. birth rate, we have one of the lowest, um, that well, still one of the highest fatality rates for birth rates and such a modern society and world. So what are we doing wrong? You know, that's what I got to ask. Let me, let me ask you this on that note um, or a similar note. You know, here, here's an example. I've brought this up before, not so much in our conversations, but I've brought it up before in different contexts. And I want to ask you about it. So when it comes to like a so-called biohack, like here's an example. So some people like juicing. They like to take, you know, like carrots and stuff, which I'm not saying is good or bad. I, I don't know. But some people, in fact, there's a guy who wrote a book back in like the 80s. I think he called himself the juice man. And I think he saved his own life with juicing and, you know, Obviously, obviously has helped a lot of people. And speaking of Dr. Fleet, Dr. Fleet liked juicing. Um, so there are some people who, you know, they might say, hey, you know, juice for breakfast, juice for lunch, and then have like a dinner. You know, that's that's an idea that that may be, uh, may be valid or not. Um, then there are people, well, let me let me uh, be more specific. I read a book. I read a great, great book, by the way. It's uh, it's called There Are No Secrets. One, it's one of the best books I ever read. It's called There Are No Secrets by a guy named Wolf Lowenthal who was a Tai Chi student of uh, Ching Man Ching, if I pronounced that right, who was a spectacular Tai Chi master from China in New York City in the 60s and 70s. But anyway, it's a great book. I've, I reread it like three or four times or maybe even more. Um, and in the book, he says that his Tai Chi master said that juicing is bad for you, not juice. He said, 
um, there's just too much chi, which is a Chinese word for energy, you know, there's just too much chi in that. So like, you know, when God made like a carrot, he made a carrot for you, he or she, or it made, or however you want to refer to God, God made a carrot for you to eat. But when you take like 19 carrots and you drink it, you just basically ate 19 carrots minus the fiber, depending what kind of juicer you have. And it's not good for you. Your body's not made to have that. It's almost shocking to the body. I'm not quoting him exactly. So here you have the subject of juicing, which I'm not really calling a biohack. I guess it could be in some way. But you have the subject of juicing. Here's some very good sources, the juice man, Dr. Fleet, et cetera, who's like, yeah, juicing, it's like really good for you. Uh, probably make you live longer and have a healthier life. And you have this Tai Chi master who's really smart. He knew what he was doing. He's like, do not juice. Do not juice. This is bad for you. So how does a guy like Joel, who's a smart guy, evaluate like a new so-called biohack? We'll call it juicing for the moment. And then you, you see these different opinions, which are completely divergent. And then Joel's like, you know what? I'm going to go with so-and-so. How do you weigh all that? Great, great. That's a great question. And I remember I got into juicing way back in the day when uh, that famous Netflix movie came out with a guy who was eating like McDonald's hamburgers for 30 days. I don't know if you remember that. I, I think it was something. something. I, I actually I did not see that movie, but I remember seeing the preview for it. So I'm familiar with it. Yeah. And so the guy was super inflamed and was eating McDonald's every day. And then he goes on, he buys a juicer and loses all this weight and he's feeling great and blah, blah, blah. Right. And that's the movie. And it motivated me to go out and get a juicer. And I was like, man, maybe I need to be do, ju doing juicing. And, you know, I fell in love with it for, I mean, it wasn't like that was the only thing I did. I never stopped eating. I just started adding juicing to my life. Right. So here's the thing that's cool with, with the example I just gave, I'm always curious and I'm always just testing and seeing like, Hey, what works for me? And is there any efficacy to this? Does this, does this seem to work? I think, um, you know, I think one of the things that I always try to remember, and here's just, I can also tell you from a guy who has a lot of biohacks, let me tell you, I have a sitting down on the floor here, I have a, an electric stim machine. You can't see it, but it's, it's worth $18,000. I have a, a pulse electromagnetic field uh, wand in, over in the other room that is, uh, it, it actually shoots out, uh, some people in your audience will know Rife. Uh, I think William Rife, they talk about Rife frequencies and frequencies. And it so it emits frequencies as well as uh, PEMF, post electromagnetic field therapy. I think that's worth $7,000. Okay. So I'm only telling you this. Yo, you should have had me, you should have had me get those for you. I would have got them for less. <laughs> oh, man. I got to talk to you next time. Uh, so bottom line is I have all of these things. And every time I've purchased a piece of equipment to hack or upgrade or optimize my life, I've always been left with after about a week of going, I really didn't need this. And I'm always left also with this idea of, you know what? The most powerful thing I've learned of all, all these biohacks is first of all, you don't need any of them. And the most powerful thing that you can actually have is your mind and actually being able to control like your emotions and your, your actually what you think, what you believe, right? It's a think and grow rich or thoughts become things, all these things, right? We know it's, these are, things that have been talked about from the beginning of time. So if, if you really understand the mind and you can manage that, that's the most powerful biohack anybody can ever have. All the other stuff is just extra, in my opinion. And I love it. And by the way, go out and optimize and do all these things. But if you're not controlling this first, you're just missing the boat. Let me, let me ask you this, Joel. You know, I, I've mentioned this also before in other contexts, but in, in this uh, conversation, I want to bring it up. So let me give you an example. And I want to get your input on this subject I'm bringing up. 
I remember, I think it was, let's say, let's say it was the 1980s. Bee pollen was very popular. Um, if you went to health food stores, you know, they often sold bee pollen. They told you, you know, bee pollen was good for these things, which I'm not saying it's not. It, it may be, I don't know, but it was very popular, you know. Um, now, you know, these days, if you walk into like Whole Foods, you know, bee pollen is like collecting dust on the bottom shelf. No one's really buying it. I'm sure some, I'm sure someone buys it, but it's not as popular as back in the 80s, like right on the front shelf, like, you know, bee pollen. Then I remember in the 90s, spirulina, if I'm pronouncing it right, it's like a blue green algae was very popular. Supposed to fix everything. I just had some this morning, by the way. Yeah, and, and you know, it's still <laughs> still around, but it was very popular in the 90s, like very popular, like right on the top of the shelves. And again, now it's probably like a little lower on the shelves. I don't know if it's collecting dust, but, you know, it's not as popular. So that kind of, these things kind of come and go, um, so to speak. Then I remember when kombucha came out in, not came out because it's probably been around forever, but when kombucha became more drinkable in around 2001 or whatever that year was, they said it cured everything. I mean, it was, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't only a tasty drink that was supposed to be good for you. It was supposed to just cure every disease under the sun. And yes. now, you know, as you know, people like kombucha, but it's not, it's not claimed to cure everything. Um, and the list, go, I mean, then it was like, you know, dark chocolate was supposed to fix it, you know, whatever, you know? So the thing is there's these, there's like, there's a kind of often a new thing. There's excitement around that new thing. And then a little while later, it, it, it becomes much less popular. One, one of the latest ones, Dr. Pete, by the way, is uh, CMOS. I get asked all the time on my podcast and people commenting on my post, what do you think about Irish CMOS? So I know exactly what you're talking about. That's the latest, by the way, is Irish CMOS. And by the way, that will soon be a relic, just like all these other ones that you're talking right. about. And also, it's I remember like um, in like the, I'm going to say it was like the early, the mid 80s, tofu was very popular not so much popular, but people were very fascinated with tofu. Of course, tofu has been eaten in Asia for probably a couple thousand years. But when tofu became more common in like a U.S. supermarket, people were like, oh, tofu, I don't want to eat meat, tofu, whatever. And now, you know, people are saying like, don't eat, don't eat soy. It's the worst thing you can eat. And again, and I, I don't know if it is or not, but um, that's another example. And of course, it's also interesting with the carnivore diet because, you know, there was a point also in the 80s, when you go to the supermarket and everything was like fat-free, fat-free, fat-free. Now, you never see fat-free anymore. No one's so obsessed with that. And the same with cholesterol. I remember in up until then, well, certainly in the 1990s and up until and 70s, 80s, and 90s, people were very obsessed with cholesterol. And I remember in around 1991, I saw a book. I was in a bookstore and it was kind of like a it was an MD wrote a book and he's like, all this stuff about cholesterol is wrong. He's like, like everything they're telling you about cholesterol is just wrong. He was in the minority then, and now it's kind of shifted, and people are not as concerned about cholesterol or in the same way they were before. So how do you, as someone who's really up on these things and the subject and biohacking, and how do you look at these things? I guess we already partially know the answer with your Moss reference, but how do you look at these things when someone's like, Joel, you know, like, stop eating tofu. Like, if you have any tofu in your house, just throw it out or, you know, or, you know. Or, or hey, I know, I know, I know. Three years ago, I told you to be vegan, but now I'm telling you to be a carnivore. Like, how do you kind of navigate all this information that comes to you? I think you have to test yourself. Number one, right? You have to test and see what works for your bio individuality. And going back to your example with chi and the juice, right? Like, 
why do some people swear by it? And then like you and I have some juice. We're like, yeah, it's good. But like, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not like, you know, I need all that because you know what? (laughs) Maybe our chi is more balanced. Maybe that was somebody who had that low chi. I think everything always comes back to balance that yin and the yang. And I think there's laws about that natural laws. And when you look at it in health, it's the same thing. So for example, the carnivore kick is huge right now. And it's funny. I've done, I, I used to do a like kind of an intermittent keto kind of lifestyle for a long time. Same thing with fasting, right? Everybody was saying how fasting is the cure and da, 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 da. Now we're hearing from a lot of published uh, papers coming out saying, yeah, intermittent fasting, it, it, it works, but it's not doing what you think. You're thinking I'm in, I'm getting these uh, autophagy, which is your cells eating each other. Now, listen, that happens after 24 hours, the longer fast, 36 hours, 72. There's no doubt about that. But the intermittent fasting where you're only eating for, you know, eight hours a day. So you're doing like a 16, eight, they're starting to say now a lot of the experts are saying the reason people are doing well is just because they're having less calories. It has nothing to do with, oh, I'm fasting and I'm, I'm eating my cells and I'm healing from the inside. So it's just so funny. I, I think people need to take a step back and really test and see what works for them and their bioindividuality. And I've always come back to that. The more I learn, the more I know that I know nothing. You know, and I'm going to give you another Let me give you one more example, because I just read this amazing book called Eat Wheat by Dr. John Dooliard. He's an Ayurvedic practitioner, like very like world acclaimed world. He actually and he's making the claim you should eat gluten and you need and you want and I want you want to know why this is what these are all the his whole book is about why you should be eating. You know, know I'm going to say something interesting about that. Seriously, this is very fascinating. And he backs it up, Pete, by the way, with studies, just like all these other people are saying, oh, you can't eat wheat because the studies show this. And he counteracts everything. And he actually gives you a pretty good darn reason why people can't tolerate wheat. So yeah, and also, like and said, again, again, a carnivore would avoid wheat at all costs. But it's interesting. I'll tell you something, and I've thought about this before. You know, certain old traditions, certain old religions have wisdom in them. Now, if obviously, if someone's very religious, whatever religion they are, they would think, no, this religion has all the wisdom. But even people who are not religious would acknowledge that often religions have uh, wisdom within them, regardless of how much you want to follow it. And it's, I, I always uh, I always wondered about this, which I'm going to tell you. I, I don't think you're familiar with it, but um, in Judaism and Orthodox Judaism, where very religious Jewish people who say prayers over their food, it's very interesting. If a religious Jewish person is eating a meal and they say in Hebrew the prayer before they eat certain things, and I hope I, I hope I'm getting this right. Hope, you know, if some if some Orthodox rabbi is watching this, maybe they'll correct me, but I'm pretty sure I'm correct. I'll so, for example, for if you right, so for example, if you uh, if you drink some wine at a meal, there's a prayer for wine. I actually know it in Hebrew, by the way. I'm not going to bust it out now, but then there's then there's also like a prayer for like you know this or that. So depending on the various food groups you're eating, there's different Hebrew prayers that you would quickly say before you eat them. But interestingly enough, if you say the prayer over bread, which is wheat then you're covered everything. That's in Orthodox Judaism. If you, you know, have your wine, your this, your that, your bread, but you just say the bread prayer, then you don't even have to do the rest of the prayers. It's like such, the way I understand it, it's such an all-encompassing, important prayer. So somehow in Orthodox Judaism, at least it appears to me, that they thought eating bread was like very, very, very important. Whereas, you know, obviously a carnivore would say, don't eat bread at all costs. And, yep. you know, and some people don't like gluten for whatever the reason, you know, so it's just another interesting little tidbit about that. 
Yeah. And I mean, again, the more I learn, the more I know, I realize I know nothing. I've had guys on my podcast that are, that, that eat ton, they eat 600 grams to 700 grams of carbs a day and they eat fruit and plants. Um, and they're type one diabetics. So these guys, and they actually have a, a book that they, it's a best-selling book and they have a huge following and they've helped so many people called mastering diabetes. So these guys actually have to take their insulin every day. So they know their insulin better than anybody in the freaking planet. I mean, these guys know their, their levels to the T and their levels are perfect. How are they managing diabetes type one? And how are they man and helping all these people? Millions of people are getting help by they're in consuming 600 grams of carbs a day. Anybody in the the low carb or carnivore camp is going. That's impossible. You can't do that. Phytic acid from plants, blah blah blah. Lectins, all this stuff. I know all the studies too. I've heard about. I've heard all this over the years. Okay, well, how are these guys doing it? I'm all about results, just like you are. They're doing it, and people are getting better. So I don't really care. So about, again, yeah, I just what, think we need to go back to what works for us and try things. And I think a lot of people they try one thing and then like that didn't work. I tried everything and it didn't work. So. I would definitely well, try things and then maybe even get a coach because I've learned sometimes a coach knows way more than I know and you got to pay for that. And I'm happy to do it, especially if I want those good. Okay. Results. Joel, let me ask you this, you know, when it comes to that, we already talked about like, you know, there's the idea to be a vegan or a vegetarian or carnivore or this or that, we, you know, we've covered some of the things, you know, one kind of group of foods that it seems like a lot of people don't like, I, I don't mean they don't like how it tastes, but they don't like people eating are nightshades, which I don't know if I could rattle them all off, but I guess it's like eggplants and tomatoes and maybe some peppers or whatever. Yep. You know, I, I could say myself, I have no problem. Like, I, I don't, I don't particularly like how eggplant tastes, so I don't eat a lot. I don't of eat eggplant. a lot of eggplant either. Right. But, yeah. but if I have like tomatoes or peppers, I feel great. So like, I, I for whatever reason, like you said, you know, see how it is for yourself. I have no problem with nightshades. I don't try to eat a lot of them, but if I do, I feel totally fine. What is the problem with nightshades? Like, what is it? I mean, not for you. You you may like them too, but yep. why don't people like nightshades? What is in a nightshade that is so offensive to people? Dark. It's night, right? It's it's that polarity, light and dark, and they're dark. They're nightshades. I think you know the re so the research with nightshades is purely that uh, they have lectins in them, and these lectins are like these sticky proteins that bind and they they. They clog up your lymphatic system and they wreck, they poke holes in your digestive system, which then leads to leaky gut. And we know that leaky gut, when people have leaky gut, guess what? They experience all kinds of autoimmunities, rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, you name it. Leaky gut is like the foundation for pretty much, it's like the foundation for a lot of quote unquote diseases or autoimmunities, right? So lectin's got a bad rap. You have Dr. Gundry who wrote several books on the plant paradox and he talks all about lectins. He was a heart doctor or heart surgeon who was, I mean, that was his job was like, you're having heart failure. Okay. I'm the guy who comes in and operates. And what happened for him is he had all these people coming to him and he had a guy say, like, I don't want to have surgery. Like my arteries are blocked and all this stuff. He goes, all right, well, let me try something with you. And so his big finding was he, he has healed all these people by getting them off lectins. And so now we've been talking, now lectins is a big deal. We talk about these plant shades and how they're ruining people. The great thing about it is it brought a lot of awareness. And so now I don't think people are aware. They're like, no, eggplants are good for you. Eat them. Tomatoes are good for you. It's a vegetable. What do we always hear? Eat more fruits and vegetables. So people are eating these things, but they have no awareness that it's actually a harm to them. So that's the good news. But again, being so dogmatic to say you don't need lectins, my naturopath who I learned from he 
he runs, he has ran over 250,000 labs and even more than that. Okay. He's looked at him, read him over and helped people. This guy heals people too. And he gets people better all the time. And you know what he says? Eh, lectins. I see them come up very rarely for people. And sometimes it's an issue, but for the most part, I wouldn't even avoid him. He doesn't even think about twice about him. So You've got one guy saying, I got all the results. You need to avoid them at all costs. And you got another guy who's getting just as many good results and reads labs. He sees people's data. He knows exactly what's going on. And he's helped thousands and thousands of people. And he goes, eh, not that big of a deal. So well, check this out. So another aspect of healing and health, which you're familiar with, are when someone, in addition to using these biohacks and different things we're talking about, is they go to a natural practitioner. You mentioned a naturopath. So someone might go to a naturopath, someone might go to a chiropractor, someone might go to an acupuncturist, someone might go to a homeopath, someone might go to, uh, you know, whatever. You, you get you get the gist of what I'm saying. So let me ask you a question. Let's go into the mind of a practitioner. Now, obviously, there's many exceptions to this. What I'm going to say now, there's many, there's obviously many exceptions to this. Um, I just want to get, um, I just want to get your opinion on this topic and again there's plenty of practitioners this this does not apply to but it applies to many and i want to see if you can uh get you i want to get your interpretation of of uh of this mindset that many practitioners have so let's just say there's someone who's a chiropractor not me not anyone who's in zillow school just some chiropractor i don't even know who they are so they think they were taught in chiropractic school and they believe that People are sick because their bones are out of place, putting pressure on nerves. And then when they put their bones in place, the nerves will flow properly and they will heal. The, the patient will heal. So that's what they believe. They believe the reason people are sick is because their bones are out of place. And the reason people heal is when you get their bones in place. Many people believe that. Now, despite the evidence that's all around them, they continue to believe that. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that people have not gone to chiropractors and had their bones put in place and healed. It's a whole different conversation. But if you point out to that chiropractor, you know, people go to acupuncture. Acupuncture has been around for 2,500 years. They're not x-raying anyone. They're not putting anyone's bones in place. They're not adjusting anyone. They don't care what the upper cervical position is. They're just putting needles in people and they're healing. So how can you say that the reason people are sick is because their bones are out of place and the reason they get better is because their bones are in place because we have evidence all around us that that's just not true. Or you might, let's just, uh, take the uh, acupuncturist, let's say there's an acupuncturist who believes like the reason people are sick is because their meridians are blocked and the way to get them healthy is put needles in the right place to open their meridians so they heal. But then you say to the, to the acupuncturist, look, I know acupuncturists get great healing results, but what about the naturopath? They give dietary advice, they give herbs, and people heal with that. They're not getting any needles put in them. So uh, wh why do you think it is, Joel, that some healers get so tunnel vision and so asleep to reality um, that although they probably help a few people with what they do, they, they don't understand the big picture. What is that problem? It's easy. It's all ego. It's because they have been taught that, you know, here's the thing. Um, let's just look at the pandemic, right? As an example, I won't mention the word because I don't want your podcast to get banned on YouTube or any of the channels, but that 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 thing that was spreading around, right? Um, you had you know a camp of people saying this is it and this is it, and then later evidence was like, wait a second, this is not safe and effective. Wait a second, it doesn't actually even do anything with transmission and everything. But you still have, even with all the mounting evidence, you still had that camp of people saying, nope, you got to do it, you got to take it, you got to do this, you got to do that. 
And why? Because they have a doctor next to their name. They worked very hard to get where they are. And for them to admit that I might be wrong, that is their identity. I have to admit that I am wrong and I am valuable. And everything I believed or have been saying up until this time and what I've learned is a complete falsity. I don't even know if that's a word, but it, it is complete. Good enough for me. I knew, what, I knew what you meant. Yeah, it is a complete joke. I am a sham. I have to admit that I am a sham. Oh, my God. That is going to crush my ego and who I say I am. And so that's that's the bottom line. It, people are so it's like, this is my practice, and it becomes all about me, and they're not putting the patient first. And so even when I meet with people, I'm always looking at them in totality, and I know my capacity, and I know what I know. And so if I if I can help them, this is where I can help them. But I always recommend, hey, you might get some benefit by going to acupuncture. In this case, you might get some benefit going to chiropractic or seeing some other healers. This is what I would do, and this is how I'd prioritize it. And that's it, man. It's ego. It's always ego. <laughs> excellent. Excellent answer. Okay. Now I want to switch gears to topic two. Let's Switching go. gears totally. That was great. That was a great first part. Um, many, many don't know that uh, Joel here used to be a police officer. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. He was a police officer in Oakland, California, and then a police officer in San Francisco, California. Am I correct so far? 100% correct. Okay. And I'm, just so, so you know, we're recording this August 16th, 2023. I'm very confident that I will once again be a San Francisco police officer. Uh, I don't know for how long, but I'm sure I'm going to get my job back. Okay. We'll talk so about yeah. um, obviously, you know, actually you've, you've been on the news a lot and you've been interviewed quite a bit. Um, we can really talk about anything you want to talk about. Um, with that said, what I want to ask you about is your opinion on crime in different cities because i don't really understand it and maybe you can shed some light on it i think someone who was a police officer and maybe a police officer again um has a better grip on uh the crime topic than most so for example let's just go to some examples like and you can correct me if any of my facts are wrong but like if you walk around a city like San Francisco for years now, for years, there's broken glass everywhere. People just like break into windows. Like now, if you're in certain states in this country, the U.S., if you break someone's car window and steal something, and you get caught, you're going to be in some. You're going to have a serious legal problem. But in San Francisco, it appears that there's very little, if any, legal problem. So there's not there's not much deterring someone from. Hey, nothing's really going to happen to me anyway. So what's the big deal? I'll break this window and take what I want. And then you just see broken glass all over San Francisco. Um, and before you, you know, start answering the question. And then, for example, if you look at like a Walgreens, you know, in like San Francisco and you see like videos of people just like looting it, they just like come in in broad daylight, start taking stuff, just stealing stuff. Now, I would think that the laws in San Francisco are such that it doesn't really deter them from doing that because if they steal a few things, whatever. Now, there are certain states in this country that if you pull that crap, you're going to have some issues. Um, so what motivates political leaders to make laws which are so light on crime, leading to a ton of crime, it appears? Because it's funny because you would think that people in politics, they want to get voted for. So they want to do things to make people vote for them. Well, the people who are doing the crimes, I don't even know I don't even know how many of them are voting. And the None people the, the the wealthy people in San Francisco who want to live in a safe place probably are it's not motivating them to vote for those candidates that are making 
uh, the city into what it's appears that it's become. So if you could just kind of like touch on various um, points in this topic, I think it would be uh, enlightening for a lot of people. Yeah. So quickly, you know, my background, six years as an Oakland police officer, eight and a half as a San Francisco police officer. I worked uh, Oakland. If anybody knows Oakland, California, I always say top five dead or alive, one of the most violent cities, always in the FBI top five category for violence, whether it's, you know, violent crime, um, you know, robberies, what they would call, they call it, it's a, you know, major crimes is what they would call it. So like assault with a deadly weapon, robbery, they're always like leading. Um, and then San Francisco, I moved over there and I worked there for eight and a half years. I didn't, I dealt less with violent people and more with crazy people, people with mental illnesses. I mean, I never had experienced so much in, in Oakland. I experienced very little of that. It was just, but now, I mean, in SF, it's out of hand. So you asked a couple of questions. Number one is why is it that way in San Francisco? And you said, well, shouldn't these politicians be doing things for the good of the voters? Absolutely wrong. They're not doing that because what I have learned since being fired two years ago because I wouldn't put an experimental product in my body, which I was forced to get in San Francisco, I learned and I just watched as things were trans uh, transforming that these so-called leaders, they're not leaders. They are just doing whatever they can to support a very vocal minority. And they're 